This is uh, Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Rob Suslow, who is a professor of pathology and laboratory medicine and uh, also attending pathologist at Memorial Sloan Kettering in New York. Welcome, Rob. Oh, thank you so much, Pedro. So, Rob, uh, today this is a, an exciting topic. Uh, we want to talk to you about what are some of the updates in pathology as it pertains to endometrial cancer. And I know there's a lot going on, so I think that this will be a great opportunity um, to learn from you, obviously, about some of these uh, novel changes uh, that are that are taking place. So, one one of the first things that I wanted to do is just um, start by asking you. Um, you know, certainly one of the first issues we should discuss is the current um, problem with reproducible diagnosis of the various types of endometrial cancer. Um, can you expand on, on this? Sure, my pleasure. Uh, the best data we have are for the high-grade endometrial carcinoma. So that would include grade 3 endometrioid, serous carcinoma, clear cell carcinoma, carcinosarcoma, and undifferentiated carcinoma. And amongst those high-grade tumors, we know that there's, um, you know, disappointing inter-observer agreement with respect to diagnosis. Um, skipping back just momentarily to the lower-grade tumors, it does appear that so-called low-grade endometrioid adenocarcinomas, uh, particularly grade one, are uh, reproducibly diagnosed with some only exceptions, the major exception being gland-forming serous carcinoma, which, um, especially to people who practice in low-practice settings, might think resembles a grade 1 endometrioid or even a typical hyperplasia. Um, so definitely the problem with reproducibly mostly lies in the setting of a histologically high-grade tumor. That's not to say um, that there are not prototypical or absolutely characteristic examples of each endometrial cancer type that I just summarized. There certainly are, and in those cases, uh, most pathologists uh, will agree with one another about the diagnosis, but there are tons of exceptions. So in a, um, you know, a very simple study, um, that involved retrospective review of slides from, I think it was about 60, maybe 59 uh, consecutive hysterectomies for high-grade endometrial cancer performed at um, Vancouver General Hospital. Three um, pathologists with a dedicated interest in gynecologic pathology reviewed all the cases and uh, that was probably one of the first studies in which we realized that there was really an imperfect uh, agreement between even you know dedicated gynecological pathologists when it comes to subtyping high-grade endometrial cancer. So it's a problem, particularly with the high-grade cases. So, so Rob, as a follow-up to that, um, is it your opinion that um, you know certainly when patients are diagnosed with the high-grade endometrials? and particularly when patients are being considered for um, clinical trials, that uh, we should stress the importance of having the pathology reviewed at a center where pathologists obviously have the expertise to differentiate among the high-grade endometrial cancers. 
Absolutely. Um, you know, I know that in many centers, um, uh, surgeons, for example, have the option of uh, operating on patients without having a confirmed histological uh, diagnosis. And um, my opinion is that although, um, you know, that is probably generally a safe approach, um, it is not in a significant minority of cases. And I, I gave you one of the examples of, for example, misinterpreting uh, a serous carcinoma as an atypical hyperplasia. So that kind of uh, secondary review is helpful. One of the barriers to doing that secondary review, of course, is um, considerations regarding uh, reimbursement um, in the United States. Um, I, I know that there were other elements to your question, so if you could just uh, please uh, prompt me or uh, sure. repeat the question. Yeah, and, and, and yeah. I, um, I wanted to, you know, kind of going along the same line of, uh, of uh, question is the issue of the correlation of histopathology and uh, clinical outcomes. And, and I think obviously we yeah. have been deriving our practice based on what we get from the pathology report. Um, do, do you think that there is obviously now some potential development beyond the histopathology and the correlation of clinical outcomes? I do for sure. So um, just to step back one second, um, if and my comments are going to pertain um, at this point specifically to histological subtyping of endometrial cancer. It's now been shown in uh, several large uh, retrospective studies that histotype is not only uh, lacking in uh, reproducibility, but it also has um, limited clinical relevance in endometrial carcinoma as compared, um, importantly, with ovarian carcinomas, where um, high-grade serous carcinomas, endometrioid carcinomas, mucinous carcinomas, and the rest each have very distinctive appearances, very distinctive immunophenotypes, very distinctive genotypes, and kind of uh, predictable clinical outcomes. Endometrial cancer is a different beast. In a large retrospective study looking at the clinical outcomes of more than 1,000 patients with endometrial cancer from our center, we performed a CART uh, regression analysis uh, to determine prognostic subgroups of patients, uh, basically all comers with endometrial cancer, and found no surprise that stage was uh, the first important discriminator between, you know, low-ish and high-risk disease. Second, when you concentrate only on the stage one disease, um, grade is important, um, but not the histotype. So high grade separates easily from low grade. And this study also informed the cut point between low and high grade, with low being FIGO grades one and two endometrioid, and high grade being uh, grade three serous carcinosarcoma and differentiated carcinoma and the rest. Uh, so uh, we do know that histotype itself is not 
highly linked to clinical outcomes, rather the stage uh, the gr- and uh, the grade uh, take much uh, have much more importance in the setting of endometrial cancer, uh, for example, than in um, ovarian cancer. Um, I think you also um, asked about clinical trials, eligibility, and uh, yeah, clinical trials eligibility. And I do think that uh, given the current structure um, of the design of many clinical trials, um, they're based on history. Many of them are based on a precise, well, an attempt at precise histopathological um, assignment of subtype. Um, and for those kinds of clinical trials, I really do think that um, ancillary testing, either using a next generation uh, sequencing uh, approach or with or without immunohistochemistry, you know, really is a very powerful way of distinguishing um, among the different high-grade histotypes. That being said, um, you know, it may not be really super clinically informative to parse out those different histological subtypes, as I think we're probably uh, going to discuss uh, later in the podcast. When we have clinical trials, uh, for example, something like basket trials, um, where the eligibility is defined by uh, usually a molecular driver, um, uh, then the need for histological subtyping of the high-grade cancers will, will obviously become less important. And, and Rob, you uh, you mentioned you know the the um, genomic um, I- impact on on the the evaluation of patients with uh, the high grade endometrial cancer. You recently published on the use of the the FIGO grading and the genomic subcategories in clinical practice. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, so the Cancer Genome Atlas is um, a wide array of different methodologies, all of which kind of culminated in a molecular classification of endometrial uh, cancer. Um, the Vancouver group and the Portec group have, um, you know, really nice data indicating that we can kind of replicate what the Cancer Genome Atlas did using a limited uh, set of ancillary testing, um, meaning that we, we don't really need highly sophisticated analysis to reproduce the uh, molecular categorization of endometrial cancer. Um, at minimum, it takes um, two mismatch repair immunohistochemical markers, uh, PMS2 and MSH6, a um, P53 immunohistochemical stain, and then if you're going to do uh, a single uh, gene sequence, it would be to identify um, hot spot mutations um, in the exonuclease domain of polymerase epsilon. Um, And that's the kind of easiest and most efficient way that we can reproduce 
uh, those subcategories using a limited number of tests. So that's the the really the foundation for uh, what for the methodology that we applied, uh, looking at a retrospective, a large retrospective series of patients diagnosed with grade three endometrioid carcinoma of the endometrium. And what we found was that the um, TCGA subclassification uh, of endometrial cancers in general does really pertain to grade three endometrioid carcinomas, prob- probably more than in any other sub uh, set of endometrial cancers, because it turns out that the grade three endometrioid carcinomas are the most um, molecularly heterogeneous of all the cancers studied in the TCGA. Said another way, um, based on molecular subtyping, there are at least four different types of grade three endometrioid carcinoma, which really tells us that this is um, not a real clinical pathological entity because we actually have four variants of grade three endometrioid carcinomas. And by applying the immunohistochemical stains and the molecular analysis that I just summarized, um, we actually found grade three endometrioid carcinomas that had significantly uh, worse clinical outcomes uh, than expected and another group that had clinical outcomes uh, that were way better than expected. So um, the tools are definitely have value with respect to prognosis. So I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that because actually it's very interesting when you speak about these four subgroups, molecular subgroups of endometrioid carcinomas in and, and I'm going to try to do justice to, to the classification. Uh, you spoke about the carcinomas with polymerase, epsilon, exonuclease, um, the copy number alterations and P53 mutations, microsatellite unstable, and then copy number low as well. Uh, how do these yeah. impact prognosis? And, and is this something that we really need to get to the details of this subgroup categorization to counsel our patients differently, to manage our patients differently? Yeah, that's that's a kind of a hard question to answer, but I'll, I'll try to go through it in a stepwise way. Um, as you said, there the TCGA recognized uh, basically at least four genomic subsets of endometrial cancer, meaning that our uh, the Bachman classification of endometrial cancer that separates endometrial cancer into type one and type two, while um, you know in, informative um, and it's been very important um, for us in developing you know greater understanding of endometrial cancer, that's uh, probably an out moded model. And so we're now thinking of four types of endometrial cancers. And as you uh, mentioned, the four genomic subgroups uh, discovered by the Cancer Genome Atlas, and I'm going to list them kind of in order of frequency. So by far the most um, frequent type of endometrial cancer is the so-called copy number low. And it's it's not important to remember uh, that name. It's probably more accurate or at least easier to remember if they're referred to as endometrial cancers without a specific molecular phenotype. It's basically um, a diagnosis of exclusion 
you need to exclude the presence of the polymerase epsilon as exonuclease domain. You need to um, exclude um, a, a deleterious p53 mutation either by sequencing or the immunohistochemistry, and you need to exclude microsatellite instability. The second uh, most frequently encountered category are the microsatellite unstable endometrial cancers, and they constitute anywhere between 20 and 30% of all um, endometrioid adenocarcinomas, um, and to a lesser extent, uh, clear cell carcinomas, very rare carcinosarcomas, and differentiated carcinomas. Um, and so what I'm talking about here is microsatellite instability that um, develops as a consequence of different molecular abnormalities. And we don't yet have enough information uh, regarding whether um, each type of abnormality predicts for a different type of endometrial cancer. But for now, we can detect the microsatellite unstable cases by doing at least two immunohistochemical markers or in most cases, four markers, which are MLH1, MSH2, MSH6, and PMS2. So whereas up to 30% of endometrial cancers can be microsatellite unstable, only a tiny proportion of those patients have Lynch syndrome. And of course, the distinction between a sporadic endometrial cancer it's microsatellite unstable, and a microsatellite unstable endometrial cancer due to Lynch syndrome does require genetic testing. And before we continue on to the um, less common genomic subtypes, I just wanted to mention that the overwhelming um, preponderance of the copy number low or the uh, no specific molecular uh, phenotype category, they're almost always grade one or grade two endometrioid carcinomas. And the other really interesting thing to point out here um, is that it's also the type of endometrial cancer that's the most easily recognized and the most reproducibly diagnosed by pathologists. Um, again, uh, as I said earlier in the podcast, um, you know, the grade ones, uh, particularly in the grade twos, are easiest for pathologists to recognize and um, reproducibly diagnosed. The microsatellite unstable tumors are mostly endometrioid, as I just indicated. They're not serous carcinomas. Um, and we have a wide distribution of grades in the microsatellite unstable group, um, but there certainly are plenty of grade three endometrioid carcinomas captured um, in that subset. The next most frequent subset are the P53 mutant um, endometrial cancers with so-called copy number alterations. The copy number alterations just refer to the fact that these tumors are typified by lots of chromosomal amplifications and deletions. And in endometrial cancer, that mostly but not always uh, correlates with the presence of a deleterious P53 mutation. We would all predict, right, uh, because of the presence of the P53 mutation, that perhaps most or all of those carcinomas would be serous or carcinosarcomas. 
But it actually turns out that in addition to those tumors, we also have um, grade 3 endometrioid carcinomas that map to that category, um, as well as smaller numbers of uh, clear cell carcinomas and undifferentiated carcinomas. And finally, the least common uh, molecularly defined subset are uh, those with polymerase epsilon exonuclease domain hotspot mutations. And those are almost exclusively endometrioid carcinomas, frequently of high histologic grade. Uh, there are very rare examples of polymerase epsilon mutations encountered and other subsets with the exception of serous carcinomas, all of which uh, belong in the P53 mutant copy number high group. Uh, Pedro, you also mentioned uh, that I think, or at least implied that the TCGA um, did look at the clinical correlates um, for each of the subgroups. And uh, really what they performed was a kind of what we would say in pathology, a low power view of <laughs> clinical outcomes stratified in these four groups. We don't have a lot of clinical information, but we do have information about prognosis. So um, the P53 mutated category, um, I think everyone predict uh, would those patients would have the worst prognosis. Um, contrasted against the carcinomas with polymerase epsilon, exonuclease domain, hotspot mutations, those would be the patients who have the best prognosis. And remember that I just um, mentioned that the polymerase epsilon uh, mutations um, predict for endometrioid carcinomas frequently of high histologic grade. So we have this really interesting paradox that the polymerase epsilon mutations are usually uh, confer a very highly favorable prognosis, yet histologically some of them uh, look high grade, and perhaps some of and in and in addition, some of them actually simulate the appearance of a serous carcinoma. That's really interesting to keep in mind. Um, then we have the microsatellite unstable endometrial cancers and the copy number low endometrial cancers, which seem to co-segregate as intermediate risk genomic uh, categories. So we have the best prognosis with the polymerase epsilon, some of those tumors looking histologically high grade, worst outcomes with the P53 mutant amplified and deleted um, endometrial carcinomas most but not all of which are serous. And then we have the intermediate risk uh, categories, microsatellite unstable and uh, no specific molecular uh, profile. And Rob, do, do you ever encounter uh, a situation where you have overlap of these categories? That's, that's a great question. So I, um, let, me, let me just deal with the exception first. What's interesting is that when a copy number low or a microsatellite unstable or a polymerase epsilon mutation endometrial cancer metastasizes or recurs, it is sometimes the case that the genomic profile of those uh, recurrences or metastases does not match the primary tumor. So that needs uh, to be... Uh, taken uh, account of, especially 
when looking for um, targetable agents in the setting of recurrent or metastatic disease. You can't always rely completely on the genomic profile of the original case. And that's because these tumors figure out a way, basically, to gain a growth advantage or um, to lose chemosensitivity. And we've definitely seen examples of, for example, polymerase uh, epsilon mutated endometrial cancers that metastasize and the profile of the metastasis looks like a microsatellite unstable cancer instead of a pull-E polymerase epsilon mutated carcinoma. So those are some exceptions just to keep in mind. But uh, more specific to your question, do we see overlap? Well, um, using molecular techniques, no. We don't see overlap. And in fact, um, if you look at mutational signatures, uh, which is basically a summary of all of the copy number alterations and all of the mutations that we find in cancers, it actually turns out that the pole E mutated cancers have a pole E fingerprint. The um, microsatellite unstable cancers. Uh, map to one of several microsatellite unstable uh, fingerprints. The um, P53 mutant cancers pretty much have an what's called an aging signature, and the same is true of the copy number low tumors. So um, from the standpoint of genomic categorization, these are distinctive categories. However, when you use immunohistochemistry. chemistry, uh, that's where you can see the overlap, but that overlap is really not clinically significant. Uh, significant. Let me give you an example of a case where we have, you know, so-called immunohistochemical overlap. We do our mismatch repair immunostains. We do the PMS2 and we do the MSH6. And for example, let's uh, say that we have a deleterious mutation in MSH2, which leads to loss of expression of MSH2 and 6. Um, obviously, the patient needs to uh, counsel with respect to her risk of Lynch syndrome and, and possibly undergo germline genetic testing. But assuming uh, at this point that she has a um, sporadic microsatellite unstable carcinoma, we then continue our uh, routine order set for endometrial cancers and find abnormal P53 staining. And then we're in a paradox, right? We have our immunohistochemical stains telling us that this is likely a microsatellite unstable carcinoma. And at the same time, we find evidence of a P53 mutation using immunohistochemistry. When you study the, the genome of those cases, what you find, um, and this is to summarize a complex issue, is that the driver of those cancers is the microsatellite instability. One of the downstream effects of microsatellite instability is the accumulation of multiple mutations in various genes. Among them might be P53. So in the example that I just gave, what we have is a microsatellite unstable carcinoma with a passenger P53 mutation. It's a P53 mutation that is not deleterious and doesn't drive the biology or the, or the histology or the clinical outcomes. In those cases, you have really a mismatch repair deficient endometrial cancer, and the P53 mutation probably has 
no significance. Okay. Those are some examples of overlap that I can think of. And, and Rob, obviously looking at, at these patients with advanced stage endometrial cancer, noting that many of these patients obviously have limited options and very poor prognosis, um, it sounds like you obviously see a very pertinent role um, for determining the genetic drivers in helping us target the, the therapeutics. Uh, in, in other words, the, the use of molecular characterization in helping us determine how to treat these patients. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, you know, I, I'll, I'll start my answer to your question by saying that, you know, obviously the efforts of the TCGA and all the current efforts, um, you know, in basically translating the TCGA for uh, routine clinical use, a lot of it is really aspirational. That I, I think everyone would agree at this point that the categorization definitely um, conveys prognostic information, for sure. Um, whether it tells us a lot about potential drivers, I, mm, it doesn't tell us a lot uh, based on current technology, but it tells us a little bit. So if you... Um, consider the presence of microsatellite instability to be a genomic event that's targetable? It certainly is. We know that, um, given the use of pembolizumab. Whether it's highly efficacious in endometrial cancer, you know, is a completely different discussion, but at least um, it represents a treatment option for patients um, with microsatellite unstable uh, cancers, for sure. What is there any other low-hanging fruit that we've discovered looking at TCGA data? Not really. The only other thing I can really come up with at this point are the very rare ESR mutations, the estrogen receptor mutations that are occasionally found in treatment-naive endometrioid carcinomas. And they you know, those patients may uh, respond to certain combinations of hormonal therapy um, more frequently than uh, patients whose tumors don't have that mutation. Um, so as far as finding targets, we are kind of currently at an impasse. And, you know, we're hoping that um, studies of the methylation profile of endometrial cancer or the... Um, proteomic profile of endometrial cancer uh, may provide additional data. And of course, refinements to the techniques used in the TCGA may also um, provide additional targets for us. But unfortunately, among the copy number high patients, uh, we have not identified important uh, targets um, for the copy number low tumors. We don't have important targets, but it should be said that most of those patients don't need to be treated with uh, targeted therapy. And then for the poly cases, they're, you know, number one, they're really rare. Uh, number two, almost all of those patients present at stage one, uh, don't need adjuvant therapy, and only very, very, very rarely recur. So based on those very rare occurrences, we have essentially no data regarding uh, the presence of actionable targets. Um, yeah. 
did you want did that <laughs> no, the answer I mean, you wanted? That's, that's uh, <laughs> I mean, it, it's you know, a obviously. little pessimistic, but it also <laughs> opens up the possibility that we could certainly learn more and help our patients. No, but more. I mean, it's uh, it's just fascinating to see how much um, progress there has been and in, in how the, the field is changing. So, you know, Rob, obviously, always is uh, a pleasure speaking with you. And um, I was wondering if you had any additional closing remarks. Sure. Um, I just, you know, I just wanted to make uh, one one comment before um, concluding, if we have the time. Um, and I, so the so I mentioned the fact that the TCGA is kind of aspirational um, as far as um, the recognition of you know druggable targets for sure. But the other thing to remember about the TCGA is that this is TCGA data. This is probably a work in progress. And as we dig down into the four different molecular subtypes, it seems as though that there is, um, in, in certain settings, a high degree of heterogeneity within a group that seems to be homogeneous. So, um, and, and this actually, I think, uh, may help us to further uh, refine prognostic categories. So, for example, if you look at the nonspecific molecular profile cancers, the prototypic grade 1 and grade 2 endometrioid carcinomas, we know from TCGA that when all the dust settles, these are intermediate prognosis cases. And that, I think, should be surprising, right? Because grade 1 and grade 2 endometrioid carcinomas in general are thought to be, you know, they're low-grade uh, tumors and frequently present at high stage and infrequently recur. However, if you look very closely at those data, it seems as though there, um, that there are some high-risk um, molecular characteristics that essentially tell us that the intermediate prognosis that we find in those cases uh, really represents a mixture of um, highly favorable prognosis cases and actually highly unfavorable prognosis cases. So um, the two abnormalities that the TCGA um, identified that were prognostically significant within the group of that nonspecific molecular phenotype category um, is something called chromosome 1Q amplification and deleterious beta-catenin mutations. So we now, and actually those 1Q amplified cases um, can be very aggressive despite the fact that they do not map to the P53 mutated category. Um, kind of the poster boy for that type of tumor is an endometrioid carcinoma that looks like a mesonephric carcinoma of the cervix. Those frequently have 1Q amplification and KRAS mutation and look histologically low grade and usually present at low stage. Despite that, these tumors frequently metastasize to the lung um, and liver, and we know very little about how to treat those patients efficiently. So again, the main point is that the TCGA um, is the first step in our understanding the genome of endometrial cancers, um, and it's aspirational regarding therapeutics at this point. So in summary, I would say that um, TCGA data are great, provides a lot of prognostic information. 
Um, you know, if you look at uh, traditional clinical pathologic risk assessment for endometrial cancer, using that along with the molecular genetic classification um, probably provides the most uh, prognostic or even more precise prognostic information than we had available to us previously. It's great that we can simplify uh, the many analyses that the TCA uh, TCGA did by using a standard order set uh, for immunohistochemistry and a sequence for polymerase epsilon. The one thing that we haven't talked a lot about is the potential usefulness of um, sequencing to inform a good diagnosis. And I gave one example um, at the top of our session, and that was um, the misinterpretation of FIGO grade 1 endometrioid carcinoma as a serous carcinoma. And that distinction can be made with the standard order set, um, the DNA MMR markers and the P53 stains. And if those are not available, that distinction can certainly be made using next generation sequencing. That's just one of uh, many scenarios in which the molecular typing um, can inform the diagnosis. Um, I think going forward, we have to uh, keep uh, several things in mind. Uh, as uh, um, hospitals and uh, companies perform more and more um, next-generation um, sequences, um, the cost of doing that analysis falls, while at the same time the cost of doing you know, multiple immunohistochemical stains along with the poly sequence rises in price. So at some point, we're, we're going to arrive uh, where we find that the price of doing immunohistochemistry will equal or perhaps even exceed the price of doing next-generation sequencing. And we have to keep that in mind because what we're doing with immunohistochemistry may well become obsolete in the future, again, especially as the cost of doing NGS uh, lowers um, and the turnaround time uh, becomes even faster. Going forward... We're going to look for additional targets. We may not find the targets uh, using DNA sequencing or even RNA sequencing. We might uh, need to look at the methylome and the uh, proteome, as I mentioned before, um, and hopefully we'll be able to provide better care for our patients with endometrial cancer. Well, thank you very much, Rob. Uh, this has been uh, obviously very informative, and, um, and uh, I want to thank you again for your participation in our podcast. My pleasure.